I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, the Tampa Bay Rays were supposed to be in full tank mode when spring training rolled around, but they had a plan and it worked almost to perfection. They surprised almost everybody by winning 90 games and becoming the last team eliminated from the postseason in the American League. Not many saw that coming. We're going to take a look back at a most remarkable race season, one of uh, many changes and innovations, and look ahead to 2019 with Mark Topkin, the race beat writer for the Tampa Bay Times. But before we get to Mark, is swimming with the manatees on your bucket list? Well, it should be. I've done this. It's remarkable. You have to try it. If so, seven days a week. You can do just that with Captain Mike's Swimming with the Manatees in Crystal River. It's the ultimate family bonding experience. Ask about the $30 Manatee Bronze Tour and be sure to ask about the free offer for active law enforcement officers and U.S. military personnel. Requires a purchase of two silver tickets at a regular price. After that, you'll be eligible for the free tour. Book online at swimmingwiththemanatees.com or call 352-571-1888. Mark Tompkin uh, covers the Tampa Bay Rays for the Tampa Bay Times. Mark, this is 21 seasons you just completed, is that right? It is 21 seasons long. I feel like 25 at the moment. But, yeah, 21 seasons <laughs> and uh, all for the Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg Times, com, Twitter, you name it, we do it. Do you – I always wanted to, you know, because I've never obviously, uh, thankfully, uh, and for my own well-being, I think, not had to endure the grind. I mean, baseball players obviously go through, um, you know, what is an endurance test of 162 games. You do not even take a road game off, as the case is right now, or the last three years. But um, what is that? What what is it like? Because I know how it's like when a football season ends and and there's no postseason. It's sort of abrupt, you know. Everything. It's like you're you're in this pace, and then and then you're not. Um, and I know you're still doing, you know, writing, you know, postseason stuff and whatnot. But how? What is it like for for you to uh, to know that you don't have to be at the clubhouse at three thirty? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of relief just in that, Rick. I mean, we're again, we're not anywhere near on the schedule that the players and coaches are where, where everything's kind of mandated. But, yeah, the, you, when you're covering a baseball team, you know, you can't cheat the day, and, and you have to be at the park at a certain time. Usually I try to get there by 2, 2.30 every day. Uh, you're there till 11.30 or midnight every day. And, you know, so when you get to the off season, you still might have busy days, and you might have days when you're writing about a soccer team that the baseball team is buying or something <laughs> crazy like that. But – you, you don't have to, you know, you're, you're constantly watching the clock. I mean, I, honestly, during a regular home game day or even on the road, like, you know, you might wake up, do a little work, you know, go for a walk, work out, whatever, do a work in the room. But, yeah, once you get to, like, noon, you're starting to, like, do that math in your head. Like, all right, you know, you got to get showered, got to get dressed, got to get lunch, got to get to the park, you know. And if you're in a place like New York where you're taking public transit, you know, you got to give yourself an extra amount of time if you miss the train, you know, there's just Chicago, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, you're always kind of on a schedule. So it is nice when you get to the off season, you're not on that schedule, even though you still have a lot of stuff to do. And it is a long season. I mean, you know, you think about it, you know, not, not in any way talking about sympathy here, but just the reality of a season. You go down to Port Charlotte, you know, February 8th, February 10th, something like that, and the season ends. You know, you're still writing wrap-up stuff on October 1. So it's definitely a grind. It's a fun grind, but it's absolutely that. 
How strange is it? And uh, in, in, you know, this I think the most surprising thing, uh, the, the most surprising season that I've ever seen with the Rays was this year. I, I mean, I, I think 08 obviously sort of holds its own, you know, standard, right? Nobody saw them going to the World Series, and that's the most success that they, they they've ever had. And it's so hard to get there, and yet it came out of nowhere. So, will that season aside. I can't remember and that I've been more wrong about a franchise and what they were trying to do and what they had. And, of course, everything evolved right in real time. I mean, usually when you break these, these teams down the way they wanted to uh, and sort of rebuild you know, through the farm system and, and, and not so much thread the needle, but this, this seemed and felt like a rebuild at the beginning of the year when you get rid of you know, people like Evan Longoria and then, you know, and then later Steven Sousa and Alex Colomay and Denar Span. But they actually were able to do that and win 90 games. I don't think I, I, I don't think that there's ever been a season, a race season quite like this one. I, I would agree with you, Rick, and, and I think you made some really good points there. And, and I think you know, the front office, first of all, deserves credit. They had a plan, and you know, they tried to explain it to us. And, and you know, kind of playing it back in my mind, I think maybe some days I was as guilty as anybody of not really listening to what they were saying, and you know, kind of had a narrative predetermined that. You trade all these guys, you're going to stink. You know, it's just how it works. You're going to lose a million games. And, you know, I, I think we weren't maybe paying attention to what they were saying, which is, you know, kind of they were going to try and do this and try to do it on the fly and try to transition to their young core and bring these guys up and see what they have left and see if they can still win with the young guys and what's left on the roster from the guys they keep. And that's kind of what they did. But but I also will say that, you know, and I appreciate the candor of some of the front office people, Eric Gander and Kevin Cash and even Stu Sternberg, the owner, the other day, admitting they didn't expect it to be this good. They didn't expect that they would be at 90 wins and, you know, playing for 90. And, you know, they were the last team eliminated in the American League. They have the most wins of any team in baseball. It didn't make the playoffs. They actually the same amount as the Atlanta Braves. So wow. you know, to, to measure that accomplishment in so many different ways – I don't think they thought they'd be this good either. And maybe they played over their skis a little bit, you know, and they then on the other hand, they kind of staggered to the finish line too. They, you know, that game in Toronto that they let the six run lead get away. That was kind of the beginning of the end, you know, pick yeah. off one or two more of those games in 91, 92, I mean, 90 wins was enough to make the playoffs the last four years. And, and it didn't work for them this year because of obviously having two super teams in their division that both won a hundred games, but you know, it really was a remarkable season. I think it went better than they thought. And you're right. They they basically took the timeline that teams like Houston and Chicago uh, laid out and, and collapsed that timeline and basically said, you can turn a team around in a year. Now, does it carry over? How good will they do? How much pressure, expectations will there be on them next year? That's all stuff we're going to find out going forward. But but they definitely deserve credit for this season. Absolutely. I thought it was interesting. You talked to Matt Duffy, and I've often wondered about this. I mean, they know they're playing in the American League East with the Boston Red Sox and the Yankees, and certainly Toronto has had their days in the Orioles where they spent a ton of money. Um, and yet, you know, everything they read, and, and not just from locally, but, I mean, everywhere, um, said that, you know, this team could lose 100 games. How do, how do players, you know, how did they keep from letting that sort of sink into their psyche a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Kevin Cash, the manager. I really do, because I think he saw, you know, he saw it from spring training. There was a day in spring training. It was the morning after that they traded, um, they traded Odorizzi and Dickerson on the same night, on a Saturday night. Then two nights later, it was a Tuesday night, or three nights later, they traded Souza. They wow. were coming in the clubhouse the next morning. And, you know, Archer and Kiermaier are the two guys, they're your go-to guys for quotes. And Archer... Yeah, he kind of was meandering. He wasn't really saying all that much. And Kiermaier was just standing in his locker waiting. Yeah. And I thought, that's not, you know, that's 
there's a reason he's doing that. He has something he wants to say, and you know, kind of wrapped Archer up quickly and headed over there. And very measured, very rehearsed comments. And Kiermaier basically said, like, I don't know what we're doing here. We're, we're messing this up. I don't see how this works. And you know, he was really upset. And and you know, I think that was one of the days. Cash said there were some days where he had to talk to some of the veterans, and he said, I was calling. It was another one where he had to kind of convince them. It's going to be all right. Those were his words. It's going to be all right. And he had to sell the other players on that, you know, without tipping his hand too much because players sometimes will repeat what you tell them. But he knew, you know, they were going to get rid of some more veterans. He knew they were going to bring these young kids up sometime midseason. He knew they were going to turn this team over. And, you know, he really had to sell the, the veterans to be the message carriers for him. And I know you see that in football all the time. You know, they have certain veterans mm-hmm. that the coaches rely on to spread the word in the clubhouse. They can't touch every player as much as they try to. And, and Cash had to do a tremendous job to get these guys to not give up. And then think of how they started the season. They win opening day. They lose eight in a row. They're playing in 30-degree weather up in Boston, New York, Chicago. They are 1-8 at that point. Then they end up – they come home. They're 4-13. They've lost like six one-run games. I mean, this thing was blowing up. That was the week. Then Kiermaier gets hurt. That was the week I wrote. They're going to – this could be the worst race team in history. They could lose more games than any team ever. Worse than O two 2 team. Lose over 105 games. And – I really thought that was going to be the case. And again, give the credit to Cash for getting these guys to not buy into that narrative, to believe they were better than that, to show they could be. And, you know, it was kind of up and down. They'd win four or five and where they lost. They had two eight-game winning streaks, two eight-game losing streaks, and I think three five-game winning streaks and three five-game losing streaks. So this was really an up-and-down team that whole first half, and he held them together. You talk about managing. I mean, just think of the number of players. I was reading um, some numbers uh, that I'm sure you, you know very well. Um, that you know the the Rays used fifty four players this year, thirty one different pitchers, seventeen different starting pitchers, and here's the number that dislayed me: twenty three rookies. Mark twenty three played yeah. this year in the in the majors, and I think thirteen were uh, debuts. I think there Shoot. were twelve or thirteen guys that made their major league debut. You could. There's some established teams where they go through a whole year that might not have one guy make his major league debut. I know. Maybe one of two, and that's just in September. So they had half their team, basically, 12 out of 25, that made their major league debut this year at some point. So, yeah, just the amount of uh, the amount of shuffling, the amount of turnover, the youth that they had, some of these guys asking guys to play out of position, asking guys to play every day to not play every day. There was so much that went on into keeping this team together, and you know, some of the veterans did their part as well, obviously, but it really was uh, a key to their whole success was not letting the team kind of accept defeat early in the season. Was there a time, was, was there a, a, not necessarily a moment, I mean, you talked about all the veterans leaving in, in, in that moment with Kiermaier, you know, sort of early in the year or in spring training and whatnot, but was, was there a time when it looked like, okay, um, Maybe they'll dig. Maybe they are going to dig themselves out of this. I mean, was it was there a series or or some type of of, of uh, turning point for them at all? Yeah, I think it was probably the late June stretch. I mean, they played. They'd had their ups and downs to that point. Like I said, they were very streaky, and they came yeah. home off a decent road trip, and they played. I believe in order, it was they swept the Yankees, and they had the walk off homer by Bowers who was in his like third week in the big leagues by then. Then they played the Astros. They lost the first game. They won the next three. That was the game where Castillo struck out Altuve with the bases loaded and then got Jeriel to ground out the eighth inning, and they hung on to the lead. And then they played the Nationals, and they beat them. So they went 8-1. and one. Obviously, at that point, we still thought the Nationals were good. So they went 8-1 and one against the Yankees, Astros, and Nationals at home. 
And I think at that moment, that was when they had put the young kids up. I mean, their record once they brought up Castillo, Adamas, and Bowers was pretty remarkable. And those three guys were all brought up in that first, you know, first eight to ten days of June. And once they had those guys in there, and then they had that eight and one stretch, I think that's when you thought, wow, you know what? These guys have some talent. These guys can play. They just played, you know, like I said, at that point, you thought Washington was on the plus side. Three of the best teams in baseball and just went eight and one against them. So that was a pretty big moment, I thought. You know, I, I thought that uh, there was so much anticipation for Adamas and Bowers and those guys, and, and yet, um, you know, Adamas had to go back down. And part of that was, you know, Hechevarria was still around, but he, he struggled a little bit. Those guys really, it never really seemed too big for them, even when they were struggling. And I know Bowers, you know, wanted up, you know, really having a tough time at the plate for most of the year, the second part of the time that he was up there. Um, but they they added energy to this team. I mean, it wasn't like you had a bunch of veterans that, that needed to be pumped up or anything, but you could feel, uh, you know, sort of, like you said, the season starting to turn when those guys arrived, right? Absolutely, and I think it was the enthusiasm. And sometimes, you know, youth can be bad because these guys get big-eyed and they're they're uncomfortable playing in some of these bigger venues and playing some of these better teams. And and I know this was written about a lot and talked about, and I wasn't sure how much credit to put to it, but I think it was a valid point that you know these guys had played together in minor leagues, they'd won together in the minor leagues. They came up with the attitude of we've done this before. Yeah, it's only been in Durham, or it's only been in Montgomery or Port Charlotte, whatever. But we've done this before. We're just playing it on a bigger stage right now, but we, we know we can do it. And there really was something to that. And I think you saw that spread. I think you saw that confidence spread. And then as other guys came up, you know, I was joking with Willie Adams. They, they park in their parking lot based on seniority and seniority. That's how your parking spot in the raised player lots determined. And I remember joking with the Damas at one point toward the end of the year that like he moved up 10 spots just over the course of, <laughs> you know, from when he was called up in June and July, because they kept calling up, you know, they get rid of some guys and call other guys up and, so, you know, I, I think those guys just got comfortable and you saw some leadership emerge from those young guys. But, yeah, it really was in a way remarkable that they, the Rays knew these guys could handle the moment. I mean, Brandon Lau, his first one was the 0 for 19 when he started. It looked like, boy, he might get sent back down. He might be one of these guys like Stephen Vogt that goes through the whole year, yeah. doesn't get a hit. What if he never gets called up again or gets hurt during <laughs> the offseason or something? And he turned out to be a pretty good player, too. He looks like he could be like – high school kid hanging around the clubhouse chasing foul balls or something but you know they brought these guys and they all had skill they all had talent they only had a play they all were pretty mature nobody really seemed outclassed and you know then they bring him in michael perez who who is michael perez that they get for matt andrees in a trade and they bring him in and the guy's going to be their starting catcher i mean it just they just really hit on the guys that they brought in internally and some of the guys they brought in in trades the trade of Chris Archer, long anticipated and finally executed, brought them uh, a pretty good pitcher in Tyler Glasnow, um, and and obviously uh, other you know other players. How how I don't know like what was the impact overall of, and I don't mean this in a bad way necessarily, but maybe I do. I don't know. Blake Snell was already on his way to a pretty good season at that point, um, but then Blake Snell went ahead and should win the Cy Young Award as we sit here talking today in my opinion, with, you know, 21 and 5. But um, what, did that, what did that do both in what they fetched and, and also this now was, you know, I think by that time Snell had kind of eclipsed, you know, what they had hoped Archer would be. But was, was there anything there with Archer leaving and, and the net gain from that? 
Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I've thought about that a little bit. And I, I do think that, you know, Chris Archer was a guy that obviously was a big presence in the clubhouse. Yeah. And, you know, in, in and I'm not, I, I have no, this is not to, to make a veiled shot that I don't, you know, that I have a specific point here to make. But, you know, a guy who's a big presence in the clubhouse is not always going to uh, be received by everybody. That's right. It's like, you know, in our sports department. I mean, Absolutely. If you're in the office and there's one guy who's always standing there in the corner telling stories, and telling jokes, and being the center of attention, some days you don't want to hear that guy anymore. That's you right. Know, and you don't need to hear his same stories again. So That's why know, I, I do don't go in the office. Any, I don't go in the exactly. office anymore for that reason, Mark. That's why, because I was, I was that guy. So, yeah. Yeah, so you know what group dynamics on. are. So, you know, I do think there was a mm-hmm. sense that, you know, Chris Archer was a big presence. He wasn't pitching particularly well. You know, and there was, you know, you want to see your leaders do well. So I, I think there's a little something to that. I think he had a very positive effect on Blake Snell, and the Rays are probably fortunate that that message was delivered before they traded him. But Chris Archer is one of the reasons Blake Snell realized how much work you have to put in, you know, in between days one and five or in between days one and six when you pitch. You know, your start day and then the next five days. And, and Chris Archer should, and I know Kevin Cash has said it a couple times, get some credit for Blake Snell's remarkable turnaround this year. But I think his work there was done. You know, I think Blake yeah. Snell was good. I think Blake Snell was ready to kind of blossom uh, without Chris Archer there. I don't think he needed him to remind him anymore. He got the message. His work this year with the training staff and their strength and conditioning guys has been remarkable. That One of the strength and conditioning guys was saying the other day, on Snell pitched game 161 right on Saturday night. And on Sunday, when most of the guys are sitting in the clubhouse packing and telling stories and stuff, Snell wanted him to go out and run with him one more time. I mean, he wanted wow. his last day of running in. So I think Chris Archer's work with Blake Snell was done. I do think the fact, like I said, he was a big personality in the clubhouse. He wasn't pitching particularly well. And I think this had been hanging over the team for so long. And I know I wrote you know, a few weeks ahead of that, you know, it's time to trade him. And I think that is he, is he not, is he not? It just wears on everybody, good and bad and different, yeah. whatever you think of the guy, it just wears on you. It's a tiring thing to constantly, is he going to get traded? Who are you going to get for him? What is it going to mean? So I, I think there was a, a release, probably not the right word, but almost a sense of relief for all parties. Okay, they made the decision, they cut bait, they traded him, here's what you're getting back. He's gone, he's going to go to Pittsburgh, maybe it's going to work out, maybe it's not, but the decision was made. I think there's just a sense of relief it's like a lightning of the load when that happens. That was closure for sure, and that was something that was sort of up in the air for, for too long probably. Mark, I think 2018 will also be remembered for the year that the Rays became the Rays again. Uh, I know that's been said, but, um, you know, they were the team that, you know, found ways to win the American League East against, you know, obviously big salaried uh, teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox by being innovative. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today by all the shifts and some of the trends that they helped create in baseball. And they started another one. And I know it was born out of necessity, but maybe not. We heard about this, you know, as far back in spring training. Wasn't, again, like something that was completely spelled out. Um, but when they came with the opener idea, it ended. I think this is something you're going to see around Major League Baseball going forward. 
Oh, I do. I think you know if we if we had a sound cue here for Steve, we'd play a revolution right now because I do think this was the start of a revolution, and, and I think you are seeing it. I mean, the Oakland A's are doing it in the playoff game, their wild card game. I mean, it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, I remember talking to Stu Sternberg, the owner, in maybe August, maybe mid August or so, in New York, and he said he thought maybe six or seven teams would be using the opener next year. Well, we've seen six or seven teams try it this year. This when I asked year. him that the yeah. other day. He said, oh, probably at least half. And mm. you're going to see teams try it for different reasons. I mean, the Rays, like you said, it kind of was organic. They kind of started doing it because they had to, and they needed a way to fill innings. And, and you know, they thought it was best to shield their young pitchers from having to just go out there and face some of these tougher lineups. So they would let them pitch behind the openers. But you're going to see teams do it different ways. You're going to see a team – like the Yankees may do it because they know they've got six closers they can put out there and really shut a team down. And you're going to see teams do it out of necessity. You're going to see them do it out of creativity. I believe the Brewers had a game last week where they had Dan Jennings, actually used to be with the Rays, lefty reliever, just face the leadoff batter for the Cardinals, Matt Carpenter. And it was it. His job was to get the best hitter the Cardinals had out. He happened to be batting leadoff that day. So his job was to get him out. That was one of his four times up. They wanted to get him out, and they did. They used the pitcher for one out and took him out. And obviously, September rules, you have more flexibility to do that than the rest of the season. But, no, it's definitely widespread. It's definitely been a, a sea change in baseball, and the Rays are definitely the ones behind it. A couple other uh, things just about some players real quick. Um, where, did they, where did they find Joey Wendell, and how did he become a Rookie of the Year? candidates i mean geez <laughs> when he's not when he's not putting the books back on the shelves at your local library right yeah uh, this guy looks like nothing uh, when we you had, just you know we had him at the uh, clutch hitters banquet friday uh to present him with his his tampa bay bbwa outstanding rookie award and you know he's in street clothes he's wearing he wears some glasses and you know usually just kind of a average you know he's not one of those flashy guys he's wearing kind of the clothes like you know normal people wear and yeah, you think he's an accountant or he works in a library or he's, you know, an engineer or something. He does not at all look like that pro athlete. And, uh, where they found him was they found him on the scrap heap from the Oakland A's, who, who are typically a very smart organization that values players similarly as the Rays do and, and right. always looks to find bar, you know, bargains on the margin and value on the margin and things like that. But the Oakland A's had a young kid that they wanted to protect, uh, Francisco Beretta, and they'd made a trade with the Yankees that included a young middle infielder who, if they wanted to keep him, obviously had to put him on the 40-man roster. They ran out of space, so I don't know if they thought Joey Wendell would get, would go unclaimed by anybody. Nobody would want him. But the Rays, uh, according to Heim Bloom, their senior VP, had been looking at him toward the end of the season last year, thinking, you know, we might have a use for this guy. He may become available and the Rays got him for a song. They got him for a Class A catcher. He was already DFA'd. It was a really easy move to make. And and I don't think the Rays fully knew what they were getting. And then they kind of picked up, it was actually three days in a row, they picked up a left-handed hitting middle infielder off somebody's scrappy, Micah Johnson, uh, Travis Shrimp, and then Joey Wendell. And at the time, I remember Matt Silverman saying, you know, what distinguishes this guy? And he said, well, I'll tell you one thing about Wendell. Wendell is a really good defensive player. That's, that's definitely his calling card. And, Boy, was he right, and, and then some, because he turned out to be a tremendous player in all facets of the game, and a great example. I mean, Kevin Cash, it might be one of his best quotes of the year. He said the other day, Joey Wendell plays the game the way you want your whole organization to play. Yeah, that's so true. And another guy that they acquired that I love, this is my favorite player moving forward, I think it's going to sit somewhere in the middle of the lineup. He can bat anywhere. The man with a 1,000-mile stare, Tommy Pham. 
How good is he going to be? And how good is that? How good is that outfield going to be for going forward? You can like Tommy Pham, but just don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He uh, he definitely uh, takes the game seriously. I, I actually just a quick aside. I remember asking Chad Matola, the hitting coach, doing a piece on Pham last week or two weeks ago, and said, you know, Chad, I don't know, watching him play, like, is he play? Is he playing angry or is he playing driven or is he playing focused? And he goes, yes, all the above. I mean, <laughs> uh, a little bit of all that. And yeah, I, I think there's a little still getting to know you thing, you know, going on with him yeah. and the rest of the players. And obviously, it's a loose and relaxed clubhouse. He's a very serious player, but. You're absolutely right, Rick. I mean, he might be the best hitter in their lineup. And to pick up your best hitter in your lineup in a in a July 31 trade for three minor league players, none of whom was was a sure, you know, bet, blue chip, top prospect kind of guy, pretty remarkable deal. And, and just to see what he did, I mean, he played those couple games. He went on the DL and he came back in the 355 with, what, a 1,000-plus uh, OPS uh, from when he was back. So really good player, good base runner, a tremendous hitter. I think he's a pretty good outfielder. And, yeah, it's going to be curious to see. I mean, one of the offseason storylines is going to be, do they move Malik Smith or, or even Kevin Kiermeyer? Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, yeah, because yeah, Austin Meadows is going to – Yeah, Meadows is going to play, right? I, I mean, so. he's going to be up here. I, I think yeah. so. I mean, he could he could conceivably be sent back to the minors and, you know, be kept down in the minor leagues. But I think part of the reason that, you know, they made that trade with Pittsburgh for Chris Archer was they thought Austin Meadows was an impact player as well. And, and – might be hard to have three left-handed hitting outfielders in Meadows, Malik Smith, and Kevin Kiermeyer, but Tommy so Tommy Pham's going to play, and he's going to play against righties and lefties. So the other guys got to rotate a little bit if you keep them all. But uh, the potential for that outfield to be really good and cover a lot of guys. I mean, Pham played center field for the Cardinals, and Austin Meadows played center field for the Pirates. So you could have, no matter how you put them together, three center fielders out there all the time. Will there be a decision, too, between C.J. Crone and, say, G-Man Choi? I think C.J. Crone's going to be the loser in that. I think he's going to end up getting moved. I think I uh, heard a little bit, wrote a little bit about this, that they want to get a right-handed power bat, which is what C.J. Crone is. He just hit 30 homers, my gosh. But a right-handed power bat with a little more positional versatility. And and I think you know, maybe that's a guy, whether that's a, an Andrew McCutcheon type guy, or maybe that's even a Nelson Cruz type of guy. You talk about a presence you get out of your lineup. Oh, wow. but, you know, somebody with a little bit bigger bat, maybe is a little bit more of an overall type hitter that can play the field a little bit for you somewhere. Uh, you know, maybe it's in the outfield when you do face a lefty, you run him out there or something like that. But I, I think CJ Crum probably gets moved. I do think they like G-Man Choi. I think they're intrigued by him. I think he'll be back. Well, what other are the major sort of decisions? I mean, I, I would imagine they'd like to find themselves a right-handed bat, as you mentioned, um, that's got some power, um, maybe a catcher, and perhaps even a closer. I don't know what their plans are with Sergio Romo, but it seems that, and maybe even you know they have a guy on that staff now that can do it. But how many additions do you think uh, that that they'll be looking to to make there? Yeah, it's probably yeah because they're the Rays, they'll probably make ten additions. But two <laughs> things: one, they're their 40-man roster is really jammed up right now, and they've got all these young players. There's only, you know, there's only two free agents who come off, and that would be Romo and Carlos Gomez. I don't think either one of those guys will be back. There's seven guys eligible for arbitration. I think three or four stay, so those three come off. So that's you know, five, six spots. They've got four guys alone coming off the 60-day DL, and then they've got minor league prospects they want to add, plus whatever additions you make. So it's going to be a tough year. You're not going to see... I think what you're not going to see is a lot of incremental improvements. I think the guys that they go out and add are going to be guys who are significant improvements. They're going to be guys who are definite upgrades because they're going to lose some of these young, talented players in the process of creating roster spots. 
So they've got to be significant upgrades. I don't think it'll be a high volume off season necessarily, but I think it could be a big impact off season in that they may go add that big bat. We just talked about, they may go get a closer, as you said, because I think if you have that one guy and it was Sergio Roma most of the year that allows Kevin cash and Kyle Snyder, the flexibility to use Alvarado Castillo, Stanek, uh, Chaz Rowe, I think will be back. You know, maybe Kalarik, you know, the funky lefty. Use those guys whenever you want. And, you know, we know Cash will do it sometimes, the fourth, fifth, sixth inning. And if you got that one guy at the back end and you know he's there, you know you can count on him, I think that gives you more freedom to do that other stuff. So the other thought is, do they go get a starting pitcher, which seems crazy because they got like 15 of them or 17, as you said. But, you know, if they're going to go with three days of starters and two days of openers, which seems to be the mix that Cash has mentioned he'd prefer, you got Snell, you got Glass. Now, who's that third guy? Do you do you graduate Yanni Chirinos or Ryan 16 win Yarborough to be a traditional starter and let him go out there without the opener, you know, without the protection that's afforded? Or do you go get a starting pitcher somewhere? Hey, Mark, yeah, that's very curious. Mark, yeah. what about the infield? <clears throat> uh, you've got Jake Bowers, you've got Adamas, you've got Joey Wendell and Matt Duffy, but you've got Daniel Robertson coming off the disabled list. You've got Brendan Lau, you got Christian Arroyo who was up with the team, and, and then he went down and got a concussion and was out most of the year. And Keon Wong's got to be out of the 40-man roster. Well, and Andrew Velasquez, who was brought up at some point in September, too. So, yeah, there's there's a little too much there, and that might be an area of, of trade if they do want to trade a player as opposed to try to, you know, just get somebody uh, to take somebody off the roster and run the risk of losing him. I mean, you could make a case as Daniel Robertson better to be your everyday third baseman than Matt Duffy. I, I don't know yet. I mean, I, Daniel Robertson at a certain point in the 2018 season, was the MVP of the team as well as he was playing. And it was unfortunate he got hurt. He missed the final two months. It's easy to forget how well he was playing at that point. Um, you know, maybe does he play third and Duffy goes back to being a swing man? Or do you trade one of those guys? You, I mean, just throwing it out there. Do you trade Joey Wendell? I mean, will his value ever be higher? Uh, but do you run the risk of maybe he's even better than he was? So there, there's a lot of unknown there. I do think you're right, Steve. The middle infield's a little cluttered. And they're going to have to clean that up in some fashion, and whether that's in a trade or you just pick, you know, the best group and you send another couple guys down. I mean, is Jake Bowers automatically the first baseman, given how much he struggled here toward the second half of this year? Does he have to show you something in spring training? And if not, you know, who plays first, G-Man Choi? I, I don't know. There's definitely ways to go with that, but there's definitely a an overabundance or a depth in infielders that they probably have to sort out. Yeah, and you got Nate Lowe down in the minors, too, who, I mean, he just came to Durham yep. late in the season and probably not ready yet, but mid-season right. or he late season next year. Three levels. Can... Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. He played his way through three levels this year. He made it from Port Charlotte to Montgomery to Durham, so he'd be a guy I think would be available at some point next year for them, and there's more coming. That's the crazy thing. This kid, Lucius Fox, that they got way back in the Matt Moore deal, with San Francisco a couple of years ago. He made it to AA this year. He is a legit player. They've got another kid, I can't pronounce his name, Brujan, who was just a uh, second base type, number one pick in the Dominican League, where they picked the kids who were eligible for the first time. He was the number one overall pick to go play in the Dominican League this winter. Uh, Nick Solak, the kid they got from Ariz- Yankees with the Arizona trade, he came from the Yankees with the three way trade for Souza, had a tremendous year at AA. So they've got more coming. That's the crazy part. Mark, next year, I mean, I don't think the Red Sox or the Yankees are going to get any worse, and they just had, uh, in the case of the Red Sox, an historic year. So you're in the American League East. Um, it, it's never going to be easy. What do expectations do to this to this team now that you're not a secret with 90 wins anymore? Not that, not that they snuck up on anybody, but there are going to be, and I know they have their own expectations, 
uh, to be contenders from day one next year? Yeah, it's actually a great question and it's something that's going to be discussed a lot throughout the winter and going into spring training because you know, Steve Sternberg, the owner, always says you know, he hates the years when people pick them to win because it always seems <laughs> like it doesn't work out and something backfires. And, and he was joking the other day, we were asking him going back to the day in spring training when Martin Fenley of our, our staff asked him how many games are you going to win this year? And he said, more than you think. Like, no, really. He goes, no, more than every one of you think. I'm high man here. So we asked him the other day what his number was, which turned out was mid-80s. And joking about going forward, he goes, next year I'm probably going to have to be the guy telling you guys to tamp down the expectations, you know, <laughs> scroll back on the talk that we're going to win the East. And, you know, because it's going to grow and it's going to build. And I think the biggest concern, and, and Kevin Cash has already said he's going to be out ahead of this, is just kind of getting with every player this winter. He's going to let them have a couple of weeks and he's going to call all the players. But just to make sure – that nobody takes it for granted. You know, with those young kids, you know how it is, Rick. You see it around with football, you know. Sure. This was easy. I'm back now. I did all my work. I got here now. And mm-hmm. just to make sure that these kids realize two things. One, it's not it's harder to stay. It's actually easier to get there. No matter how hard you think it was to get there, it's harder to stay. And B, remind them of the depth they have. I mean, you know, just just pick a kid out of that group. Pick Willie Adamas out of that group or, or Joey Wendell, whomever, just to be able to say to them, Hey, look, just remember, you got to come in and bust it just as hard next year because we got Nate Lau sitting right here who can take your position. We got Daniel Robertson right here who can take your position. So, you know, I think he's going to do a good job of that. But that, that would probably be the concern that just any of these kids take it a little bit too easy uh, that got here this year and don't come in with the same effort intensity next year. Yeah, competition has a funny way of driving people. Uh, and once you, once you get to the majors, you kind of want to stay there. So they, they definitely have – Plenty of that on the roster, which will be great. Okay, before we let you go, who do you got in the World Series? Andy Freed asked me that the other day on the air, and I wasn't prepared to answer, and, and I hemmed and hawed for a minute, and I surprised myself, and I picked the Milwaukee Brewers, and I'm going to stick with that after watching them play uh, that playoff Very game good. with the Cubs on Monday. What a ball mm-hmm. club. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm not sure you know, how good of a manager Craig Council is, how he's going to do in the spotlight and all that, but what a ball club, the depth of that bullpen, the depth of that lineup, and they seem to play the game right. So I, I don't know that I can name five Brewers, but I'm going to pick the Brewers. They're not exactly constructed the same way, but the vibe reminds me of the Cubs when they won the World Series. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And it was just, just the way that, you know, they have their you – know, yeah, you say this all the time, it's a cliche in sports. You know, you need your best players to be your best players when it matters yes. the most. And yeah. their best players were being their best players yesterday. Hater pitched great. Yelich got a bunch of big hits. And it's it's a pretty deep group. It's an interesting team to watch play, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them play over the next couple of weeks. All right, Mark, we know your World Series pick, but will the Rowdies make the playoffs? <laughs> let me let me study some of more of my soccer analytics and get back to you on that. But uh, I, I think they will make the playoffs. I think they're going to make it on the tiebreaker in penalty kicks. Can, can they use an opener <laughs> in soccer now that the Rays own the, the Rowdies? <laughs> I, I think the opener will be the goalie. I think you'll see the goalie rotate out for the first 15 minutes and bring a different goalie in. But there's only three substitutions allowed. They're going to be a little maybe more creative. Maybe you play a defensive player at goalie for the first 15 minutes to keep the goalie from being tired. In all candor, uh, it, it, there's people that are a little gripping about that. They think maybe that there's something to go with the stadium with this whole Rowdy's purchase. Is that true or not true? It's interesting. I mean, I think I think all of us, when the word started trickling out on Monday about this, Rick, and in all seriousness, I think all of us jumped to some really interesting conclusions that this had something to do with providing an alternative to the Ebor Stadium project, or maybe the Ebor Stadium project was in trouble. 
Does this mm-hmm. have something to do with bringing spring, spring training back? Does this have something to do with bringing a minor league team in? All these theories we had, and, and I think this is one of those rare cases, at least from everyone we've talked to, where reality is it's a much less sexy, much less exciting answer. The answer was the Rays wanted to get in the soccer business because Bill Edwards offered them the team to buy it, and they saw a chance to grow that business and, and you know apply some of their acumen and their management uh, assets and skill here in town and knowledge of the market. And, and run a soccer team. I mean, it's a little surprising, but I, I really do think it was the least exciting answer, at least sexy answer of them all. Look, you, you're going to have to bone up on your soccer because I just, I just know somehow this is going to fall in your lap. I don't know why. But <laughs> I think you go straight from the, play, the, the baseball season to the, to the soccer playoffs and just go right around through. It should work out fine. No, I was going to say I am an award-winning youth soccer coach from back in the days when uh, daughter Carlin was running around in like the under-12s and 14s, so maybe I'll have to draw some of that knowledge. You should. I'm sure it's not wasted on anybody. Mark, thanks so much. 21 years, and you still got as much uh, enthusiasm for it, and it shows uh, in your coverage, and it was, uh, it was a fun read this year. I'm telling you, this, this, team, this team was fun to watch and uh, fun to write about, I'm sure, so thanks so much. Anytime, Rick. It was a good time. I appreciate it. Well, you know, uh, as the Stuart Sternberg and the Rays buy the Rowdies, there is another owner in Tampa Bay that has a soccer team. So maybe they're just joining the club. Who knows? Maybe before long they'll be in the Premier League. You never know. It's cross cross ownership is uh, is alive and well with soccer in Tampa Bay. Um, some great college football games coming up this weekend. LSU's at Florida, and Florida visits Miami. You have UCF and USF in action as well. We're going to talk college football with Matt Baker of the Tampa Bay Times tomorrow. So my thanks again to Mark Tompkin. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times for Steve Versnick. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 